number three underway. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender Show. 704-570-1110. 1-800-WBT-1110. You can email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And uh, the intelligence community has a, a, a another leak for us. Uh, just ahead of Merrick Garland, the attorney general is expected to um, uh, make a statement in about 25 minutes. And uh, in advance of this, we get uh, a story posted at 1.40 p.m. Eastern Time by the New York Times. Uh, our old friends uh, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush, along with Ben Protes, uh, or Protes, Protes, Protes. Uh, anyway, a story about Trump receiving a subpoena before the FBI search. Former President Donald Trump received a subpoena in the spring in search of documents that federal investigators believed he had failed to turn over earlier in the year when he returned boxes of material he had improperly taken with him upon moving out of the White House, according to, quote, three people familiar with the matter. As I said yesterday, I view uh, the New York Times as the conduit for the intelligence community to plant stories. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes they're not. That's where we are. So the existence of the subpoena, according to the New York Times, helps to flesh out the sequence of events that led to the search. Right? Because they were thinking, hey, he's got classified material that we think might still be there. Even after all these efforts by the National Archives and the DOJ to make sure that they were returned. The subpoena suggests that the Justice Department tried methods short of a search warrant to account for the material before taking the politically explosive step of sending FBI agents unannounced to Mar-a-Lago. Okay, that's the line, my interpretation, that's the line that they want to stick that the subpoena is proof that they tried everything they could to get this stuff back. But remember, from the first hour, the reports by John Solomon and the statements from Cash Patel, who are designated to be the representatives for Trump in dealing with the National Archives, and also the memo that Mark Meadows wrote the day before the Trump administration left office, all point to this, uh, a competing narrative, which was they said declassify all of these documents that had to do with the FBI and the DOJ's role in crafting the Russia collusion hoax and how they got the FISA warrants and how they were, you know, eavesdropping on the campaign, all of that. Declassify all this information. And the, uh, National Archives, the DOJ, all of those folks said, oh, we got we got privacy concerns. And so Meadows said, OK, redact the parts that need to be redacted, but the rest get declassified. And according to Solomon's report. They did not do it. They slow walked it, waited for the uh, for Biden to come in, and then they just ignored it. Well, if Trump took that stuff with him. Now they're like, aha, you have classified information. You got classified documents. Yeah, but Patel and Solomon are saying, and Meadows is saying, they declassified all of this stuff before they left. You guys were supposed to make redactions. And and you never did. You never got back to us on that stuff. 
So New York Times says the subpoena was first disclosed by John Solomon, a conservative journalist who has also been designated by Mr. Trump as one of his representatives to the National Archives. The existence of the subpoena is being used by allies of Trump to make a case that the former president and his team were cooperating with the Justice Department in identifying and returning the documents in question and that the search was unjustified. Do you know the name? Do you remember the name Sandy Berger? Or as Rush called him, Sandy Burglar? <laughs> right. Isn't that Sandy Berger? Remember that guy? There was a piece at the Washington Post by Mark Thiessen, who's a former uh, Bush 43 uh, guy. He uh, did a lot of work on like the, uh, the, war, uh, the war on terrorism and the, the torture tactics and all that stuff. Mark Thiessen. Lawyer guy. Anyway, he had a piece at the Washington Post the other day, and he said, I, I have cited Sandy Berger's punishment in arguing that the same standard should apply to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for keeping classified information on her private email servers. According to former FBI Director James Comey, those servers held 110 messages. Those messages contained classified information. They included seven email chains concerning matters that were classified as top secret slash special access program level. Okay, that is the highest level of classification. Even worse, the Justice Department Inspector General reported that the FBI's inspection division found that classified intel improperly stored and transmitted on her server was compromised by unauthorized individuals to include foreign governments or intelligence services via cyber intrusion or other means. What didn't the FBI do? They didn't raid her house in Chappaqua, New York. And despite the fact that what Comey publicly called Clinton's, quote, careless handling of very sensitive, highly classified information, allowed foreign adversaries to obtain U.S. secrets, the FBI director determined that no charges are appropriate in this case. Many who argued then that Clinton's mishandling of highly classified information was no big deal. They're now cheering the search of Trump's home. Mark Elias, Clinton's lawyer, had the audacity to tweet that one of the penalties for Trump's alleged misconduct could include being disqualified from holding any office in the U.S., even though he did concede that the law might not actually apply to a president. (laughs) I think about that, though. Clinton's lawyer, right, who did the very thing that now they are accusing Trump of. While facts may uh, are not yet known, we uh, not yet known. We know this much: the hypocrisy is rank. If Trump is now prosecuted for what might be a far less serious violation, his supporters are going to be right to cry foul, right? The FBI's credibility here lies in tatters. Americans know that Jim Comey misled them when he said that the Democrat-funded Steele dossier was just part of a broader mosaic of information that was presented uh, in the FBI's applications for the wiretap of the Trump campaign advisor, Carter Page. They said, oh, there's all this different stuff. No, actually, the Justice Department's inspector general found that it was, in fact, quote, central and essential to the applications. It wasn't just part of a broad mosaic. It was key. 
We then learn that FBI officials had falsified or withheld evidence presented to the U.S. FISA court in four different surveillance applications, which led to a stinging rebuke from the court's presiding judge, Rosemary Collier, who said the FBI's misconduct called into question whether information contained in other FBI applications is even reliable now. This is all part of the broader picture. Thiessen then goes on to say, after spending two years and tens of millions of dollars investigating Trump, the whole Russia collusion narrative was nothing more than a conspiracy theory, and it decimated public trust in the FBI. Can Merrick Garland salvage any of it today? I am not holding my breath. All right, uh, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland expected to make a statement in about seven and a half minutes. We will bring it to you live when it occurs, assuming it occurs on time. Uh, I'll interrupt whoever's talking. Just, that's what I do. Um, Sandy Berger, Bill Clinton's national security advisor. For people who may not remember this guy, right, he went to the National Archives. And as Michael Isakoff uh details in an interview that he had with Mary McCord, a veteran federal prosecutor who headed up the Department of Justice's National Security Division in the closing years of the Obama administration. Isakoff said that uh, Berger shows up at the National Archives and uh, after, you know, uh, Clinton leaves office, he goes into the archives while preparing for his testimony before the 9-11 Commission. Do you remember this? After 9-11, they put to get Congress that we go find out what happened. Well, I mean, not everything. We're going to keep those pages redacted. But uh, as much as we can tell, you know. And then they put out the 9-11 Commission report. But that was all based off of the testimony and the fact-finding investigations and all of that. And Sandy Berger went to the National Archives where all of the documents from the Clinton administration were housed. He went there to, you know, refresh his memory on some things. And, oh, my gosh, look at this. A bunch of the papers just got stuffed down my pants, stuffed into my socks. I don't know how to have They just jumped right in there, right? It, yeah, they, like like uh, Hunter Biden's laptop at a laptop repair company. They just It just went there. I had no idea how. Anyway, he takes these, or as Isakov says, he outright helps himself to classify documents. That's how Isakov framed it. He helps himself. He stole them. He stole them and destroyed them, stuffs them in his pockets and his pants. He gets caught and then he gets prosecuted. You know what he doesn't get? Prison time. He gets fined. He's got to do like 100 hours of community service, but he does have to give up his law license. What do you think he was stealing, by the way? This has been one of those great questions. What do you think he was, what do you think he swiped? Classified information ahead of the 9-11 commission investigation or during it. What do you think? I've always suspected it was about the tearing down of the, the or, or erecting rather, the wall between the different security agencies. What was her name? Jamie Gorelick. Remember her? Anyway, 
I always suspected it had something to do with that or that they had other types of deals or intel with al-Qaeda people like Osama bin Laden uh, that made Clinton look bad. And so they uh, and so that's what he went to go basically, you know, uh, to to clean it up like with a cloth, you know, like wiped clean. Um, something else that came out of this uh, interview that Isakoff did with Mary McCord. Um, she says the FBI warrant suggests prosecutors believe they have probable cause that there may have been violations of the World War One era Espionage Act. Here's the problem that I have immediately. First off, it's coming from an Obama DOJ official, and I don't trust them. Secondly, um, every other story you have told me about how Trump is working for foreign governments or is too close to foreign governments, every single one of these stories you've told me over seven years has been a lie. They've been lies. So what am I supposed to do? I'm going to trust you now? Why would I do that? The law has traditionally been used to target government leaders, such as former, or leakers rather, such as former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. But it also has provisions that apply to essentially the mishandling of classified material through gross negligence, permitting documents to be removed from their proper place or to be lost, stolen, or destroyed. McCord said that the Espionage Act is one of the two federal crimes that prosecutors may be focusing on in their warrant to search Trump's home. The other is federal statutes uh, that target anybody who willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys public records. McCord noted that the decision to search the home could only have been conducted with approval of a federal judge based on an affidavit from the FBI that there was evidence of a crime at Mar-a-Lago at the time of the search. So obviously it had to be true. I mean, if the FBI is alleging it, she says it couldn't be like, oh, we thought this stuff was there a year ago, but not now. It would have to be probable cause to believe the evidence of a crime exists in that location at that time. Of course, knowing what we know now about the judge, uh, that means that the Department of Justice, probably at the highest levels, probably all the way up to the attorney general, agreed this was a step that was not only legally supportable, but was also important to take. Oh, and then she also says, I, I, I don't like the term raid. She does advance that narrative, of course. Like, we don't want to call it a raid. It's just a, you know, it's just authorizing a search warrant. That's all. It's not a raid. Don't call it a raid. It doesn't identify as a raid. It's a trans raid. That's all. Matthew. News Talk 1110 99.3 WBT. We are still waiting. I guess he's on uh, Biden time. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, that appears to be, I think they're giving a two minute warning here. Uh, someone just came to the podium, made a brief comment or something into the microphone. It looks like uh, that's usually a, a, you know, they call it a two minute warning. It's not always two minutes, but it might be. We shall see. Uh, but when it starts, we'll join it in progress. Jip it. Join in progress. Um, the FBI's reputation is in tatters. Mark Thiessen wrote this in his uh, piece at the Washington Post. He also points out how last month Charles Grassley 
senator from Iowa, Republican, had reported that multiple FBI whistleblowers had come to him with allegations that senior FBI officials had engaged in a scheme to falsely portray credible evidence related to Hunter Biden's financial and foreign business activities as foreign disinformation in an attempt to stop further investigation from going forward. Right, so you've got active measures being employed. I'm sorry, I'm watching the TV. Somebody's up there talking again, but they also have a talking head. I guess they're giving them the rundown like, you guys can't ask any questions about this stuff. Now there's somebody else. Who is this? Let's go ahead and pull it up. Let's see what, uh, let's go ahead and pull the, there's no audio being fed from that? There's somebody, okay, so, oh, she must have just dropped off his binder of uh, comments. No, not women. She just looks like she uh, a staffer put something at the podium, so this way Merrick Garland doesn't have to walk out with his own book. He has, he has people for that. He's got somebody, yeah, she just carries the book for him. Um, so you've got the Hunter Biden problem that the FBI obviously engaged in what is no other way to describe it except a cover-up of that story and then pushed out this fake narrative that it was a disinformation op being run against Biden when that was actually not true, right? You have the Russia collusion hoax. You have the uh, the perjury trap of uh, Michael Flynn. You have the targeting of Carter Page, the FISA uh, surveillance court uh, warrants that were misleading, shall we say? And it all stacks up in one direction that it's pretty obvious now that the FBI has become the heavies for the Democrat Party, right? It's become an enforcement arm for Democrats. Could you imagine this type of action being taken against Democrats by the FBI? There was a piece, uh, I forget who sent it to me. Um, Annie, thank you, uh, written by a fella named Kyle Scheidler, Schideller. And is at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. And he says, for the rule of law to reign, the bureau must be destroyed. And this is coming from a guy who, ever since he was a kid, he says he always was in love with the FBI. He wanted to be a special agent with the FBI, even though he says, I didn't even know what that was when I was a kid, but that's what I wanted to be. And, uh, I mean, he did a book report on J. Edgar Hoover in middle school. Come on. Like, the guy loved the FBI. He actually has worked with the FBI on all sorts of cases and uh, on joint terrorism task forces and has like helped uh, give them insight on Islamic terrorists and that sort of stuff. So he is not, as he describes, like, I am not some, you know, civil libertarian here that's just got it in for the uh, uh, for the FBI. But he says it has to be abolished. The solution to the abuses that we have seen now cannot just be another fruitless inspector general investigation. It can't just be some more hearings that lead to nothing. It has to be dismantled. And you know me, I am all about solutions. And so I found some of his solutions to be particularly uh, intriguing. Very much like to, uh, like to explore some of these options. He says it has to be rendered into its component parts and distributed to the four winds. Right? So you've got different areas inside the FBI that can be shifted. 
You can send them to other places. Um, like, for example, um, Crime Lab, Statistical Services, National Crime Information Center, right? All of that stuff can be pulled out and you can leave them as independent agencies with the sole job of supporting other federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies with their scientific and data capabilities. That's what they would focus on, just sort of the technical stuff, the data stuff, the crime lab stuff, uh, statistical analysis, and it's just a support agency. And so that, you know, ostensibly would take all of that stuff out of the sort of political uh, environment. He then says, parcel out the FBI's criminal justice division and its tasks to the various state-level bureaus of investigation. Provide direct federal funding to compensate for the extra workload. Let them primarily make state-level cases in state court for the crimes committed within the physical boundaries of their states. It's not like kidnapping, bank robbery, drug dealing, or racketeering went unpunished before the FBI was created, right? White-collar crimes, financial services crimes, uh, cyber crimes can be handled by the U.S. Secret Service. They do a lot of that stuff also currently. Uh, Federal crimes whose perpetrators directly cross state lines can be given to U.S. Marshal Service to track down. Unlike the FBI, the U.S. Marshals are pretty much scandal-free, and they have a long history of cooperating successfully with state and local law enforcement. For the disgraced National Security Division... Divide up the FBI's counterterrorism portfolio among the remaining federal law enforcement and homeland security agencies that have a role to play and uh, the various state and regional joint terrorism task forces. He says the stranglehold on counterintelligence is the most important to break. It's within that division that the FBI spied on the Trump campaign at the behest of the Democratic Party. That is what happened, folks. I mean, you could try and hand wave that away all you like, but that is what happened. Even before it embraced the role of partisan oppo researcher, FBI counterintelligence had few memorable successes. But it had multiple crushing failures, most notably Robert Hansen. We interviewed Lise Wheel on her, about her book about uh, that, that massive failure. The struggle to conduct professional counterintelligence has always been driven by a tension between the FBI's responsibility as a law enforcement agency with the intent and the authority to jail citizens for crimes. And he says, the practice of counterintelligence is a discipline that requires strategic patience and analysis. They should have this counterintelligence responsibility taken away and vested in the National Counterintelligence Executive. Its mandate should not be targeting American citizens, especially elected officials, but rather policing the intelligence services themselves, rooting out, so in other words, like an internal affairs kind of thing, trying to find spies inside the intelligence agencies, right? Also, rooting out evidence of foreign penetration within their ranks, exploiting and manipulating foreign intelligence services for American national security interests. They do not need law enforcement powers or wide-ranging FISA court warrants to do that job either. Will the GOP majority in Congress have a stomach for it? That's the question.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Yes, we have the uh, TV monitors in studio tuned to, uh, what is this, Young and the Restless? Uh, so we will bring that to you when <laughs> it happens. No, we're still waiting on Merrick Garland. He's on Biden time, apparently. Uh, he was supposed to come out and make remarks at 2.30, and he has not done so. We are now 21 minutes late. 21 minutes late. I'm not sure if there was any kind of an update given as to why. It's been so late. We, we have now gotten some leaks out of the uh, out of the White House, though. A senior White House official tells, what's this, uh, what's her name? Kelly O'Donnell, who is a senior White House correspondent for NBC News. And uh, a senior White House official told her and uh, Fox News's Brett Baer also saying something similar. So probably the same source said Biden and the administration had no notice that Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General. Appointed by Biden, that he was going to be giving uh, uh, any uh, speech that he was going to be speaking nor do they know any of the contents of his remarks. This is just, they just got completely blindsided by all of this. By the way, Joe Biden's on vacation, so uh, unavailable for content. He is uh, enjoying uh, some well-deserved rest after his previous bouts of rest um, uh, down in Kiowa. I believe he went to Kiowa for his vacation. They still not there. If he drags it out long enough, um, it's gonna it's gonna pop right during Brett's show, and and then Brett Winterbull is gonna get to join it in progress. He's gonna get to jip it, which really isn't fair to me. I mean, really, because like this, I was counting on this to eat up like a whole segment, um, and now I, I don't get I don't get that. But also. I mean, I think I, I think Brett's going to be a little bit harsher on Merrick than than I would. You know me. I'm I'm a nice guy. You know I. He's just making it harder on himself. Just okay. Let me let me get to this. The American. This is David French. I I I I, I hear you rolling your eyes. I can hear that sort of thing. But David French, he I think he made like one good point. In this piece at theatlantic.com. I know, I know, The Atlantic. I hear you rolling your eyes even harder. Okay. the America, He says the American public still has not seen the search warrant. Now, the DOJ is not going to provide that. I don't even know if they can provide that to the public. But Trump's lawyers have it. And they have described it, albeit in vague terms. But they have not released it. One of his attorneys, Christina Bob appeared on Real America's Voice. He calls it an obscure far-right media network. And one of these attorneys, this attorney, Christina Bob, said that the warrant sought classified documents, evidence of a crime as far as classified documents go, and presidential records. That's what she says. Now, because we don't know, overclassification, remember this? This is what Hillary Clinton said. And this is what her defender said after she got busted keeping the the server. And, of course, nothing happened to her. But um, when when this came out, there was this pushback, this narrative that was advanced that, well, you know, it's like this. It's over classification. Like, oh, my gosh, they 
They classify stuff all the time, and it really isn't classified material, but they just slap the designations on there. It's kind of out of control. I mean, really, I, well, she didn't really do anything wrong. And then, of course, you find out that, no, she actually did uh, like quite a few things wrong. There were quite a few actual really classified things, top level, the toppest of the toppest of the top. And she had them in there, and they were compromised, right? So the idea of overclassification according to David French, who is a former military guy and lawyer, he says it is a problem. But also, right, there may be stuff in some of these documents that could compromise things, that could be actually top-level classified material. We just don't know. He says, in short, Americans shouldn't really know what to think about the search yet, this raid, don't call it a raid, the trans raid, right? He says we can hope that this momentous decision to search a former president's residence met appropriate legal standards and merited the DOJ's historic intervention. We can hope that. We can fear that the uh, warrant represented either a politicized attack or an unnecessary law enforcement escalation of a politically perilous investigation. But we simply cannot know if the DOJ's actions were appropriate until we see their legal and evidentiary support. That's how we would know. A copy of the warrant is not going to resolve that dispute, though. But it can help us understand what is at stake. I think he's exactly right. I think he's, and maybe it's a little bit, you know, obvious, but I think that is correct. We can hope that that this met legal standards, Right. Uh, We can fear that it did not, but we don't know one way or the other. He goes on to say, holding on to the warrant might be bad for the country, because, of course, David French is a never-Trumper, and so he's going to turn this into an attack on Donald Trump by saying Trump and his lawyers should release the warrant. They should show it to us. They can. And a lot of this speculation might go away, right? We We would have a better understanding of what exactly they were after and what they picked up, what they took, that sort of stuff. Holding on to the warrant might be bad for the country, but for now, it's very good for Trump. Because this is how he says Trumpism thrives. As a cultural and political movement, it depends a great deal on both the extraordinary loyalty of his supporters and the overreaction of his opponents, which feeds one another. All right, maybe the AG will speak. It won't be during my show.